0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On nights 2.7 and 106 FM.
1: The Money Show brought to you by Absa CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. I hope you're keeping up. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the Money Show this evening. Roy Bagatini standing by. Roy Bagatini is the chief executive officer of Woolworths. We'll chat to the CEO of Cashbuild later on. Reflect tonight on results out of Harmony and a trading update from Standard Bank, as well as the big story of Sasfin, which is claiming it doesn't have any concerns around a almost five million rand claim from five billion rand claim from SARS. Related to that story, we did in August 2022 and Poli von resurrected with inquiries uh, because SARS is going for SASFIN. In a, it's a civil claim, not a tax matter, saying that they facilitated the exit of money from South Africa that hadn't had tax paid upon it and uh, therefore they should be liable. Now, SASFIN has gone and got some very, 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 very high level <laughs> legal advice and the legal advice that you pay for is gives you the answers that you should that you you know doesn't always give you the answer that you need sometimes it gives you the answer that you want but certainly the answer they've got from the top tax experts is that they have no concerns or top legal brains as they have no nothing to worry about uh time will tell of course as it always does with these things and then um our grape shifter this evening michael Frigen. he joins us at half past seven looking forward to seeing michael It's been a while. Now, don't tell Edward Kisvetter, who yesterday, of course, had his contract extended for the further two years, that I told you this. But it's too good to not share. In Toronto, there is a restaurant uh, that has switched the names of food items with office essentials. So you can go there and you could order yourself, let's just get the print on this one right, a basic steel stapler for $10, um, and it's what they call their fortune burger in the small print, um, an ergonomic aluminium laptop stand will get you a double patty with cheese and all sorts of other recruitments. Uh, they've got the mini dry erase whiteboard for $11, which is a chicken burger, um, and then you can get a USB wired mouse, which is parmesan fries from the streets. But this is a restaurant that has now rejigged its menu. So you get the invoice and you've got the wired mouse, the wired earphones with microphone, the dry whiteboard, the steel stapler. And provided you don't go there every week and buying a steel stapler and a whiteboard every week, I, I suppose a taxman may just miss some of that detail. Anyway, later on, coming up, I will tell you about the extraordinary evening that we had last night with a remarkable South African called Hein Wagner. You would have heard some of my colleagues talking about it today. I will share my experience with you in just a bit. But first, let's move on to Roy Baccatini because there is a perverse upside to our ports crisis, and I'm I'm waiting for this to end up as an election speech as a positive, because it's on balance, it's not a positive. But it's amazing that local fashion retailers are being forced to ramp up local clothing production using Um, alternative seaports and air freight to try and mitigate against the breakdown of local ports and the failure of rail logistics. We've seen the Fushini Group say it's had enough stock through December. It's not anticipating any autumn problems. We've seen Woolworths and Trueworths using more local suppliers, placing orders earlier. Chief Executive of Woolies is Roy Bagattini. He's on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. It has become increasingly difficult to keep your supply chains moving to ensure that you've got stock on shelves, Roy. It's been in a, a heck of a, a 12 months. Yes, no, thanks. Uh, thanks. Good evening, Bruce. Good evening to listeners. Uh,
2: no, it, it certainly hasn't been without its challenges, but, uh, you know, as, as we always uh, find, you know, we find ways around it and we try and sort of put in mitigations to to address it. And, uh, you know, by and large, you know, you sort of feel the pain once and you learn from that and then you come up with solutions uh, to address it. In our case, uh, you know, we've had to sort of uh, rejig our sort of what we call our go-to-market like, you know, calendar essentially by putting in a little bit more lead time so we can actually ensure we get stuff flowing through smoothly. Um, we've also got much better line of sight to product coming in before it lands so we can redirect it uh, to a port where there's going to be least, least amount of friction. Uh, we're also placing much smaller orders so that you don't get it all sort of clogged up with one big order not coming through uh, and you reduce your risk through that. And as you pointed out, air freight is always an option. Expensive though, so not super sustainable. Uh, but really, I mean, ramping up local production uh, or lo- production in local manufacturing is uh, is, is clearly a big mis- risk mitigator for us too.
1: I, I'm sure you've done the maths. I mean the, the fact that you've got to bring shipments in through Volfers Bay and then put stuff on trucks and then drive it all the way down to distribution centres throughout South Africa adds a cost. If you have to bring things in mm. via air freight, it adds a cost. That cost ultimately gets paid by your customer um, and of course that uh, drives up the, or the average inflation of your of your product mix,
2: no, it does. I mean, it does add a cost, and then uh, you look for ways of of getting more efficient. But what's more important to us is actually having the product on the shelf. Uh, so uh, you know, you may not uh, necessarily in the short term make the same margin, uh, but you then do find ways of, of 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 efficiencies and 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 then trying to offset that cost. Uh, there's uh, it's always a trade-off, though.
1: It certainly is. And instead of focusing on innovating and growing and finding new product lines and new and exciting and fun stuff to do, you're spending, I'm sure, more than you should be doing on the crisis mitigation, because in most places, in most parts of the world, a crisis happens and you deal with it. But you've got crisis upon crisis. There's almost a compounding of crises in South Africa, which all results in the same issue. And that is you can't get stock on a shelf. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's,
2: it's probably pretty fair to say that, you know, the, the South African landscape, you know, the obstacle course that we have to run literally every day is, is quite uh, quite particular and specific to us. There's no doubt every country's got its challenges. Uh, but that's also why you see when some sort of South African managers go offshore, Bruce, uh, you know, it sort of feels like a walk in the park relative <laughs> to running a business in South Africa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that is true.
1: Uh, here of course all about ports and load shedding and bird flu and then on top of that of course it's the global issues of interest rates and the fact that you know every time you a central banker opens their mouth um, the expectation of an interest rate cut gets pushed out a month or two Um, and uh, you know there's just doesn't seem to be any kind of relief from the really big elevated living costs that are gouging your customers ability to spend not only here but in australia where you retain some big businesses too no, no, I mean, I think it's true. I mean,
2: the macros, uh, you know, are the macros, Bruce. I mean, and there's not a hell of a lot you can do about that. Um, I think what is critical is for businesses like ours to really focus on the things that you can actually impact, uh, the things that you do have have influence over. And, uh, you know, that's sort of what we try and do, uh, you know, uh, really get the teams to, to really clearly we interpret what's going on around the business, but more importantly, make sure our strategies are, are the right ones and that they're working, uh, you know, particularly in so far as, is trying to get, uh, get something to the customer that they, they really value from us.
1: I mean, again, the numbers are hard to compare because you, you sold David Jones in Australia last year and the accounting got a, got very complicated. Uh, but uh, I, I think all in all, you did see an increase in sales during the period. There was some volume growth. But I mean, price inflation of nearly 8% is, is tough in an environment where your customers are stretched. Food, though, the food business of Woolies is the high flyer. I was just in Woolies this morning, um, you know, looking for a few things and just looking at the array of products and produce and comparing on some of my more recent travels what is on woolly shelves and what i see around the world and it remarkably remains you know again i hate the term world class but that's what it is i've said this before
2: i mean i really think and having worked in other markets globally i mean i really think our foods business here is world class i mean it it does deliver the customer its customer offering is really very differentiated and very special i mean uh, our focus on quality as you know our continuous sort of focus on investing in the customer offering whether through price through innovation etc That it does deliver the best proposition in the market and at the same time it delivers the best proposition to our shareholders. I mean, we have the highest return on capital in the sector by three to four times that of our, 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 you know, the next best in the sector. But your point about, uh, you know, choice, I mean, obviously having choice uh, is, is important. We do try and keep our shelf stock full. I mean, we've seen uh, through the strategies that we have that uh, we're bringing a lot more customers into the brand. We're driving many more transactions and driving bigger basket sizes. And that does translate into the best, uh, uh, strongest organic growth in the sector our like-for-like sales are the highest in the industry and and again that converts into being the most profitable business in the industry
1: however your shareholders are yet to be convinced share price down six and a half percent 62 rand or thereabouts it's kind of stuck in a time warp it feels i mean i think it's important to put overall uh, results into context though you know i think uh, Uh, the macros
2: are tough i mean we we're coming off our record high base the the highest earnings uh, in the history of the company last year so we're always going to be up against it a little bit but i think in that context what we do say we have delivered i think a very respectable result particularly in our south african business which is our core business where Woolies, uh you know grew profits by by 10 percent i think what what we're seeing our shareholders react to is is really our, our, our australian business uh, which has become an increasingly bigger part of our business and does make a meaningful contribution to our profitability, uh, but that uh, that is uh, that is battling uh, given,
1: as I say, the macro in in, in Oz. Uh, are you looking to exit completely out of Oz? You did sell David Jones, Country Road, and of course Trenary. Are they long-term uh, parts of the Woolies jigsaw? Uh, That Country Road Group business is
2: actually a pretty neat business. I mean, uh, what we're seeing now is a moment in time. It's a cyclical issue, uh, and it does obviously impact short-term profits. we're very clear that when it uh, when it uh, you know when things turn it will come bouncing back and having said that though you know it still contributes you know over 600 million rand to our bottom line so and it is a self-funding business too so you know no prof, no no funds are being channeled from south africa to support it uh, uh, so it's got some great gross runway uh, it's just uh, it's experiencing bad moments at the moment given the macros
1: essentially chief executive at woolies at the woolworths group roy bagatini this evening on The Money Show. I see ICASA has come out with a statement today announcing its intention to conduct an inquiry on the effects of load shedding. Now, ICASA, of course, is the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa. They are looking at relief measures that may uh, mitigate the impact of load shedding in the electronic communications, broadcasting, and postal services sectors during different stages of load shedding. Um, Good. Excellent. Excellent. Glad that they're going to have a look at it because we get nailed by load shedding. We really do. Andy Rice, our dear friend Andy Rice, he is having, and I love how they are describing it, a farewell. Sometimes you call it a memorial, but it's a farewell to our friend Andy in Cape Town on the 9th of March. And lots of you knew and loved Andy, worked with Andy, played soccer with Andy, did all sorts of things with Andy. Uh, You can go to andyrice.co.ca. There are more details. You can RSVP, please RSVP, if you would like to attend.
0: The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
1: Load shedding, water shedding, and now looming gas shedding. Yaku Himan is chief executive of the Industrial Gas Users Association. Of Southern Africa. It was about six months ago, Yaku, I think Sassel announced that it was going to be suspending gas supplies to industry in about two and a half years, which I think takes us to roughly the middle of 2025. I'm not, however, seeing any alternatives come to the fore. How worried are you?
3: Good evening, Bruce. It is true, Cecil, Cecil has made these announcements in 2026 August. Oh, sorry, 2023 August announcing that they will suspend gas supply by June 2026. That is a hard stop. So the, the, the position actually caught us by surprise because Sassel has all along said that uh, we, are, we are sitting with the prospective uh, decline in our resource gas that we have coming out of Pande Tamani. But we, we will share in that particular resource at a, on a proportionate basis. And uh, we will also keep the industries going in KwaZulu-Natal with methane-rich gas, a byproduct of their processes, until viable alternatives are available. So, cycle has now basically said there's no flowing from June twenty twenty six. Now, the issue is quite critical because you are quite right. We 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 don't see the energy alternatives available yet. It, it, it's not a matter of switching to oil or, or diesel fuel or, or LPG. It, based on the volume uh, that we use energy, uh, gas energy at, at the moment, it, it it simply is not feasible and practical to change uh, to anything else.
1: So uh, what are the consequences then? I mean, there's no plan B. Uh, industry then, what, comes to a halt? <laughs> what, what happens in, what, two years' time?
3: Most industries are looking at how can they mitigate this but but it is problematic so what we what we expect is a halt a combination of a halt a combination of production cutbacks uh from from june twenty twenty six that is that is the the hard reality that we that we faced with.
1: Uh, and so, uh, which sort of industries are dependent on gas? Then, I mean, what sort of industries, if they don't make a plan like they have had to on every other aspect of operating in South Africa, um, what sort of you know, what sort of industries are going to be hamstrung?
3: We are really talking here about the primary manufacturing industries. So, so it, it covers aluminium. It covers aluminium smelting covers the packaging, glass packaging, construction, flat glass, auto glass, you know, the auto glass or windscreen that, that, we, um, that, that we use gas energy for to make. We're talking about steel, we're talking about bricks, we're talking about ceramic ware. Um, so everything to, useful, basically, is, the is affected. We make and, uh, yeah. and most useful, the wine we drink.
1: Now, that's the most important one. Yaku, thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive of the Industrial Gas Users Association of South Africa. Touching every single uh, part of our economy, Uh, Sasol stops. What replaces it? Nobody yet has an answer. Yaku Himan at the Gas Association. The Money Show. The Markets. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91, and with all the doom, gloom, and depression around with terrible trading updates and really hard times that so many companies are facing, Standard Bank comes out with a trading update and is looking pretty perky. Yeah,
4: good evening, Bruce. Um, Yeah, a strong trading update out of Standard Bank, albeit probably by now largely discounted by the market. I mean, it has been clear throughout 2023 uh, that they were going at a greater crack than the market was giving them credit. And throughout the year, you saw uh, every time there was a a result or a quarterly trading update, you saw a a raft of uh, positive earnings revisions coming out of the sell side community. Uh, It looks as though Standard Bank is going to beat again uh, in a small degree by a percent or two. Uh, And that's really um as a result of you know the core differentiator that the standard bank group has and that's that they've got you know nowadays 40 percent plus of their earnings uh, coming out of elsewhere on the african continent where despite all the volatility we read about and all the uh, uh, i guess risks involved in, in in operating in many of those countries from a macroeconomic perspective uh, they are still growing quite significantly faster than the core franchise in South Africa. And as a result of that, it is a positive earnings growth differentiator for Standard Bank as it stands today.
1: Uh, it's Yeah, it's an amazing uh, update. Not so hot, though, for cash build. Not so hot, though, for Woolies, despite um, you know the fact that you know things are, are going pretty well in, in these, they, it's not all fall down scenario, but it's also very hard to find growth in a very low growth economy.
4: Yeah, it's 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 not all full down, as you indicate. I mean, you know, balance sheets are generally in reasonable shape. Uh, businesses have been uh, managing fairly conservatively over the last couple of years. But, the, you know, the top line is under pressure. And as you said, you saw, you know, you've seen industrial concerns like cup reporting results today, cash build reporting results. You've seen uh, Woolies coming out uh, with numbers that – you know, diluted headline earnings per share down 5.6%. They did guide that it would be down between three and eight. So somewhere around the midpoint, slightly worse than the midpoint of that range. Operating profits down almost 8%. So, you know, it's tough. It's very tough. The Woolies Food business uh, continues to shine. I think that's a a value proposition that many South Africans continue uh, to believe that they can't live without. Uh, So Woolies Food doing okay. The fashion, beauty and home franchise uh, proving to be much more cyclical and the Country Road Group uh, in Australia as well, uh, proving uh, to show much greater cyclicality. So as you say, Bruce, it, it, it's pretty tough out there, uh, whether you're an industrial concern, whether you're a consumer-facing concern or indeed whether you're a commodity company Uh, you know you're struggling at the moment
1: it's tough no most certainly is it really is awkward um and in you know to really thrive in this environment it's really tough multi-choice we've got canal plus of course which is wanting to take out multi-choice there are all kinds of obstacles and hurdles and and difficulties um how is that playing out
4: Yeah, I mean, the the takeover regulations panel indicating that given that Canal Plus have passed the 35% uh, shareholding threshold now, I believe at 35.01% was the announcement that MultiChoice released a couple of weeks back, um, the TRP ruling that Canal Plus is now obliged to provide a takeout offer to all minorities as you cross that 35% ownership threshold. Uh, That does trigger an automatic offer to minorities. And my limited uh, knowledge of these things indicates, I think, that they are obliged to make a takeout offer at a price not lower than the highest price they've paid in purchasing any shares over the last six months. Now, we know that they have uh, put through an offer to the company, if memory serves, at 105 Rand a share. Uh, The Multi-Choice Board have rejected that. I don't believe that Canal Plus have bought shares in the market at a premium to that price uh, over the last six months. So it's probably an academic issue. They may be obliged to put a compulsory offer to minorities at uh, 105 rands per share or somewhere close there too. Uh, the board of uh, multi-choice have advised their shareholders that they don't accept that offer. So we're probably back to the status quo, uh, but in a volatile environment at least it provides a fairly solid underpin uh, to the multi-choice share price.
1: Chris Stewart, thank you very much indeed, Chris Stewart, a Portfolio Manager at uh, at 91. I see breaking news this evening. The Public Enterprises Minister, Private Gordon, has appointed a new Chief Executive and a new Chief Financial Officer for Transnet. Transnet, of course, one of the... Uh, troubling parastatals that didn't get um, a bailout in the uh, budget this year, um, and as a result of that, of course, is going to have to um, really box smartly and box hard uh, in order to uh, in, in order to survive. Well, uh, Michelle Phillips, who's been the acting transit chief executive, as appointed as the full time CEO, uh, she is, I think, the longest r- remaining. Executive at Transnet, who there have been a whole bunch of uh, of of, um, resignations. She seems to have um, dodged all of the negativity and all of the associations. Um, that are, you know, sort of labelled on her predecessors. And, yeah, she is uh, finally after, what, six months since Portia Darby quit. Um, and, uh, yes, so she will be becoming the new chief executive of Transnet. And she's got a huge job ahead of her. So We wish her luck. Michelle Phillips, the new chief executive of Transnet this evening. It's half past six and time for your very latest Eyewitness News.
0: 702. Bruce is on The Money Show.
1: Bonnie van Veken, in just a moment. The astonishing story of Saspen SARS and missing billions. Uh, let me just tell you where I was last night because I think it's important. I know some of my colleagues have shared with you where we were today, uh, but I found myself as part of a, an initiative with a remarkable individual by the name of Hein Wagner. He was born blind and he hosts something called Dinners in the Dark and it's part of raising CSI money for an academy he runs providing children with support to better cope in a sighted world. And uh, you arrive and your phone and your watch and anything that can generate light um, has to be taken away from you at the door. And you're led into a pitch dark room with your hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you. And you get guided to your table. And you've got to feel your way to your chair and work out where the seat is so you don't fall on your derrier. And you sit down. And it's a little bit nerve-wracking because you're not quite sure who's sitting to your right and who's sitting to your left or how big the table is or how big the room is. You have no idea. And you're told that there's cutlery on your table so you feel and you can feel two forks and two knives and there's a spoon and a fork for dessert up there and there three glasses, a red wine glass and a white wine glass and a drinking glass, and you feel a little further and there are bottles of various descriptions. I think I gave my poor neighbor to my right about five glasses of wine instead of the water she asked for um, because you can't see. And you've got to rely on touch. And you've got these ice buckets, which you, when you touch, you get a fright. And the room's noisy and there are a hundred people in the room and everybody's chattering and excited. And you very quickly realize that you can actually only successfully communicate with the person immediately to your left and the person immediately to your right. So I was lucky enough to have Kathy Motlatlana on my left-hand side and I had a nice lady from the SABC on my right-hand side. And I think in the, when the starters were served, it was a tricolore salad. Uh, there was some cutlery being used. By the time I got to the main course, I didn't hear any cutlery. I think people were just stuffing their faces. Nobody was watching. It was pitch dark. But it was remarkable. And uh, the big reveal toward the end was, and then a band starts playing and it's a bit karaoke-ish and stuff. But you, you discover at the end that the waiters who were serving were not using um, infrared goggles or night vision goggles. In fact, the waiters are blind. And the band was the Waiters, who were blind, singing. And it's the entire experience. And suddenly, eventually, after about 90 minutes, somebody lights a candle. And you're just astonishing how much light one candle can give off. And Hein Wagner runs these all over the world. And... It is to really heighten our awareness of the world in which blind people live. Um, And he runs this academy and uh, when people graduate, they go into the workplace. And it is the whole goal, and you'll hear a lot more about it. The whole goal is to get people into the workplace. It was an astonishing, affirming, life-changing, perspective-broadening and, dare I say, eye-opening experience.
0: You're with Bruce Woodfield on
1: 702. 702. Sasson won't comment, but uh, it's got a big fight on its hands. Sars, as you know, wants 4.87 billion rand plus interest and costs connected to a group of company employees who helped clients get cash out of the country without due process. And according to Sars, without paying appropriate taxes. Now, when the story first broke 18 months ago, we had the chief executive, Michael Sassoon, and he seemed fairly confident at the time that it was a storm and a tea.
2: Yep. I can say that um, we have,
5: uh, for separate reasons, but we have changed the foreign exchange systems. The other point, which is important to note, is we were never Gold Leaf's primary banker. So all income that was earned by Gold Leaf did not hit their primary bank account at Sasson. That would have been with other banks. And I do not believe that uh, we were. Um, uh, uh, doing the full foreign exchange for gold leaf either. And the numbers at poorly quotes 3 billion. And as I say, I haven't seen the as, as case files are above what our records, uh, we, what we've been able to gather through our records.
1: It certainly wasn't too concerned at all. And that was about 18 months ago. Things have moved on very substantially since then. And Sasfin this time around, not commenting. But Poli von Weyck, who is the journalist with Scorpio at Daily Maverick, is all over this. And the basic allegation here, Poli, is that there were 11 people employed by Sasfin that helped Goldleaf Tobacco to get 8.2 billion rands worth of untaxed revenue out of South Africa over. A decade, and we know that um, Sasfin have subsequently admitted that their processes were uh, not above board. There are allegations that even when Sasfin management learned about the issues, that uh, there was a blind eye turned. Sasfin is in trouble, whichever way you look at it. Yes, Bruce, it
6: is a devastating turn of events, and that wonderful quote that you just published or played again, um, refers to Michael Fassbender. the CEO, not believing that there was actually three billion rand washing through Fassbender's accounts that they could did not know of. And at the moment we are standing at eight point two billion. So it's almost three times more and and than Michael thought. And apparently it's also not only eleven. So there are eleven people who had charges laid against them with the authorities, but
1: Sas more- eventually yeah. did lay charges against its staff members, right yes,
6: yeah, but there were more people that they found who may have at least acted in according to the regulations and the laws, and they were let go or they chose to resign um and not sit through a suspension or a um a regulation process, so yeah there's
1: trouble brewing. Uh, and again, uh, this song went on for a decade, 2013, roughly to 2023. And at some point you would think an alarm went off somewhere, that management mm-hmm. somewhere, somebody knew something and then when they did find out there are allegations that the paper trail, which you would rely on at a time like this, was very efficiently laundered, washed, mm-hmm. um, deleted, whatever phraseology you want to use.
6: Yeah, all of the above actually. So saspen and Michael Sassoon tells us that they acted immediately and you'll see all the public... Uh, Conferences that they, or press releases that they put out and um, in their annual financial statements, they say that the moment they heard about this, uh, they acted immediately. SARS has a different view on things. So SARS neatly points out that in 2016, there was already indications. 2017, there was indications again. And then um, the... Relationship with GLTC was severed. But by 2020, SARS's, uh, Rutland investigation and the GLTC investigation had snowballed. And by 2022, SARS was kicking the SASFIN doors down. Um, Sasson then had to agree and acknowledge that at least two billion was moved out of uh, its accounts without it knowing. And now we're standing at eight billion. So it depends, I guess, on
1: whose version we believe. So if this comes down to corporate responsibility. Then Sars is saying, uh, Sarsvin if it didn't know, should have known. SASFIN has previously mm. acknowledged that, yes, it didn't know and could have had better systems in place. Um, mm. But I'm wondering, and and now SASFIN has gone and got some astonishingly high-level legal uh, opinion from people like Vim Trengrove and others um, who say, well, actually, SARS doesn't have to stand on here. This isn't a tax matter. This is a civil matter. And I wonder mm. if anybody's ever going to say, hold on a second, but doesn't SARS keep officials inside cigarette factories to monitor production to make sure that once there is production and once the cigarettes move out of the offices that at least the um, the excise duty is collected. Mm. So they should have had, SARS itself should have had a far better grasp on the sorts of revenues that Goldleaf and others were likely to be earning. I mean, SARS is wanting us to believe that Sasfin's the bad guy here. Um, Is anybody at SASFIN suggesting that perhaps SARS may have missed some detail? Mm, Good
6: point. uh, SARS, um, we found a lot of out uh, in the meantime. So, Remember that this is not only tobacco money, this is also gold money. There's also other industries like Putzmeister, which is actually a legitimate company based in German with a, a, a local subsidiary, who also got caught up in this dragnet. So SARS I've been piecing together this puzzle for the past almost a decade. And what happened is that they realized that the people in the factories uh, reporting back to SARS is not... Is not the, the entire story. Uh, so it's it's much more. It's a global uh, money laundering racket. And when you then have people inside Fasen who delete reserve bank reports, who ensure that the money flow out of Fasen without even if we if we believe this without even the executive and the director and the senior management staff and knows, then there's a problem with how SARS will know about this. If it's, we're talking about warehouses mm-hmm. unregistered or money and um, cigarettes and tobacco products crossing the border illegally... Apparently, it's not that
1: simple. No, absolutely not. Nothing ever is. Uh, But this is all organized crime stuff. This is, I mean, this is very, very high-level stuff. But Mm. I I wonder if this isn't a case, and I wonder if the high-level attorneys and lawyers um, that SASFIN has has contacted uh, uh, will go with an argument to court uh, and say, well, it's a bit rich of Sars to put all of the blame on SASFIN on this when clearly processes within Sars weren't optimal either. I wonder. Anyway, Poli, thank you uh, very much for explaining a deeply complex, convoluted and contentious issue for us this evening. Um, the bother facing Sasfen.
0: Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m.
1: We all know that if your salary isn't keeping up with inflation, you get poorer in real terms. And that's one of the problems that's emanated out of the budget because you're not getting the tax relief that comes with inflation in terms of what they call bracket creep. Chances are that if you get a below inflation increase this year, you will be poorer in real terms. The same goes for companies. If they're not growing their turnover and their profits by at least inflation, they're going backwards. Werner de Acher is the chief executive at CashBuild on the line to us from Joburg this evening. I guess it's a sign of the times van i mean revenue is up just two percent your profits fell you cut the dividend it's a, a rough old world out there as many industries are telling us
0: indeed bruce it's uh, it's, it's not easy at the moment uh, in our industry and uh, um, we discretionary spend so uh, so yeah it, it, it's difficult when uh, when the consumers are under pressure
1: how much of what you import is uh, what you sell is imported
0: Bruce, Roughly fifteen percent. Um, we don't import it ourselves, but we we buy uh, through local agents. And uh, um, yeah, they, they've had their challenges this year um, with the ports.
1: Yeah, exactly. Logistics is an absolute nightmare. Load shedding is a nightmare, and particularly in the areas where you are located. They're not particularly wonderfully serviced, um, as poorer parts of of the country are not. Um, and load shedding hits you there, and all of the all of the ancillary issues. How are you? Trading through this how are you manage
0: it pretty sure so, you know luckily we, we've got we've got uh, um, backup power in all our stores so we can trade during load shedding but you know on 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 infrastructure and road um, deteriorating it is it's adding to cost to get product to especially in the rural areas where a majority of our stores are so we are you know we're working closely with suppliers trying to to, to schedule things better um, so that we can do fuller loads and and have less less um to to go to the stores to make it easier from a logistics perspective.
1: It was a stat at a budget breakfast last week, three and a half percent of the population paying 90 percent of personal income taxes. Those are kind of your customers. And and again, I suppose the social grant money helps and stuff. But, you you, you know, you don't want to be selling nails and screws only. You want to be selling sheets of iron and you want to be selling timbers and you want to be selling big ticket items. How has the the spend changed over, I suppose, since the the post-COVID boom?
0: yeah bruce we, we we've seen we've seen some 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 lower um, baskets, although this year our basket has remained the same as as the prior year, but what we see is that the projects are smaller, so decorative items like floor tiles paint um, some decorative ceiling and cornices are, are are still doing well, but the the big big items like cement and bricks and, and timber and roof sheeting those are the items that are struggling at the moment.
1: And the fact that there isn't going to be the tax relief in the budget, the fact that inflation remains in place and the fact that interest rates are not going to be cut anytime soon, we keep sort of seeing interest rate expectations being nudged out and out and out, again amplifies consumer pressure. When consumers are under pressure, if they're worried about the future, they tend to hold on to their cash more than they might otherwise do.
0: Yes, that, that, that's unfortunately what we're facing for, for the next six months. And it adds to that part, there's an election in May as well, which adds to the uncertainty, especially in, in areas where we, we trade. So it, it will be tough for us, but I mean, we're not going to sit back and and mourn mm-hmm. um, our sorrows. But, uh, you know, we've got some plans in place trying to, to grow that top line. And see that we can beat inflation
1: do you keep your store footprint i mean are you are you re- are you reflecting on the store mix where the stores are whether or not it's worth keeping them open
0: uh, from a from a cash flow perspective uh, but you know there's there's very few stores that's not contributing so we're very comfortable with that we in fact uh, very keen to to put more down and open more and hence we've we've devised a uh, smaller model cash flow that we can, we can uh, uh, easier roll out and uh, hopefully that could see us increase the number of new stores that we, that we put out.
1: Is it just a question of a cycle in the economy or is there fundamental shifts happening in the economy amongst your customer base where people are just getting poorer each and every single year and it's just becoming harder and harder to be able to afford housing as, as a very basic human need and improvements to housing. Um, are you seeing that?
0: Uh, Bruce, it, it, it would be would be wrong for me not to acknowledge that that we see people are getting queer and, and times are getting tougher. Whether it's it's just a cycle, um, I, I'm not qualified to answer that question. All we know is that people aspire to, to better housing and uh, they still need for our products. And uh, you know, if there's a bit of tailwind economy, people have a bit more spending money. We'll be well-placed to, to take uh, take advantage of that.
1: We certainly hope that it comes, Werner de Jager, Chief Executive at CashBuild. Interesting, not looking at a big overhaul of stores, not in the panic mode, um, in, or that you sort of get a sense that some companies are getting really concerned about the future. Others are going, well, we just have to ride it out. We have to ride it out. On your next Money Show, we've got Bruce Cameron, the co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Retirement in South Africa. Head teacher in our investment school, looking at his concerns about the two-part retirement system, which kicks in on the 1st of September. And Pablo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator, looking at great tips for small business owners. The bosses of First Rand, of Suntum and Spur, all talking economic and uh, financial results. That's all coming next time On the Money Show.
3: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, action led insights in Africa's non bank financial institutions sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP.
1: Remember the days before 1994. I I, I recall doing an exercise where on the day Nelson Mandela was released from prison, I looked at the top 40 of the JSE and 23 out of the top 40 shares in the JSE were gold shares. South Africa was a booming gold uh, market. Joburg was a gold mining town. And then, of course, things got tougher and tougher and tougher. Gold was harder and harder to reach and uh, Patrice Motsepe and Bernard Swanepoel consolidated uh, the gold fields into Harmony Gold and um, in Today, of course, very little gold is mined in South Africa, but Harmony produces more gold than any other producer and today paying out a record dividend thanks to solid production numbers and a really healthy price for the metal. Interim dividend of 147 cents a share. The profits went up 226%. Amazing performance. Uh, Reuters very elegantly says that Harmony is among South Africa's few remaining gold miners squeezing profits from the world's most costly aging and deepest gold mines. I think that was a good descriptor. Well done, Reuters, on that particular note. After Eyewitness News, uh, we're going to be talking why Apple has cancelled a 10-year project to produce electric vehicles. We'll uh, talk to consumer ninja Wendy Nola and at half past seven this evening, the wine guy, Michael Frigen with us tonight. Looking forward to catching up with him. It's Eyewitness News time now at
0: seven. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on nights 2.7 and 106FM. Welcome to
1: the Wednesday evening edition of The Money Show. It's brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when action with collaboration through the Insight Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. We're going to talk to Hanno Labuskati, who's a journalist at My Broadband. Uh, Beg reports out of the United States that Apple has chucked in the towel when it comes to EVs, electrical vehicles. Not the first, and it certainly won't be the last. It's a tough market. And then um, an admin issue. This is an astonishing story. Wendy Nola digs them up. I'm not sure how. Uh, But yes, she has found an astonishing story of an admin uh, issue by a vehicle finance arm of a bank that has caused massive problems. And uh, she'll explain it all to us in just a bit. And then Michael Fridgen, um, who runs a very, very successful wine business and is South Africa's. Mr. Wine um, is joining us as our shapeshifter. That's coming up at half past seven. I'm looking forward to catching up with Michael Frigin, the man who knows more about not only what goes into the bottles and comes out of the bottles, but understands the issues of investment, of land, of ownership, of winemakers and owners, and brands, and exports and imports. He is knowledgeable. That's why he's our grape shifter tonight at half past seven. The Money Show Business Unusual well, Apple has cancelled a decades-long top-secret project to build electric vehicles. Instead, going to shift its focus to AI. Now, this very secret project, called Project Titan, involved about 2,000 employees who were told roughly this time yesterday that they, some of them would be shifted to the AI project and some would lose their jobs. Now, Apple isn't, of course, the first company to backtrack in this way, Dyson. The vacuum cleaner maker also gave up in about 2020. Why did it give up? Well, this stuff is hard. It really is difficult to create massively competitive, useful electric vehicles. And particularly if you want these vehicles to think for themselves, it becomes even more complicated. Uh, The Apple team rumored to be working on a fully autonomous vehicle Now we'll do the Apple AI efforts. Hanno Labouskati is the My Broadband journalist. And it's a big shift, uh, Hanno. And it shows that even some of the world's smartest technologists really do struggle to execute on the big idea of electric vehicles. We didn't think it would be this hard. Turns out it is. Yes, indeed, Bruce. After like nine years in development, at one point there were reports
5: that they had 5,000 people working on this project. So it really was, you know, they put in a lot of resources and a lot of money into this. And I mean, this is uh, the company that's been the most valuable uh, for many years, the most valuable company in the world, and and even they couldn't pull it off. So, uh, you know, I I I think the car making business is an altogether different beast from, you know, making smartphones. I think that that might just be the first... Uh, thing to, to consider that it, it would have taken very long, but Apple was particularly ambitious about this proj- project. They wanted a truly unique car. They wanted to, to to bring out a car that was, you know, to the automotive industry what the iPhone was to the phone industry, and nobody would expect anything less from Apple. And I think uh, it, you know, with the value of cars being that much higher, that is what it would have taken to to be successful in a, you know a, a business where where profit margins are fairly slim uh revenues can be quite quite high of course, but um you know, uh, pulling off uh, what what Tesla managed to do is, is no new feat. it's not—it's not something you can easily replicate, uh, and I think they've realised this. But it's not a total loss, at least. You know, I mean, you've spoken about this. But uh, now they're going to divert some of those resources to AI, and uh, I mean, this has been a core part of the whole development of the Apple Car is that it will be driverless initially. Well, they changed some of the the, the goals uh, along the line that it will be self-driving, but it'll be at least partially AI-assisted. uh, the final product um, and and uh, you know they can at least dedicate some of those resources yeah. and team members to to AI.
0: They've
1: got to justify nine years of investment in a product that's <laughs> not going to happen. And I mean, again, you can see how the the sort of decision is made, can't you? You're sitting in a boardroom and people say, "Right, we are in the mobility business, so we mm. can you can work from anywhere. So why don't we take the same idea that got us the iPhone, the iPod, the i everything, and create a, a car because that's also mobility." It's just mobility. It's just, you know, obviously. With, <laughs> and I think, you know, what's
5: been happening in China where you see many of these uh, smartphone makers, you know, like Xiaomi, um, moving into the electric car space. It's quite interesting as well there. They they, they do partnerships with many of these um, established industrial Chinese giants and then they uh, move into the electric car space. So it, it, at least in China, it seems, you know, not completely unfeasible to to do something to evolve. But yeah, you know, I, I think Apple didn't want to be just another company. Company in this in this segment, they wanted to be to stand out, you know. Uh, and um, yeah, got, things have changed in the last few years. Electric vehicle sales are down. I know the car makers are struggling um, to to get their sales up. There's uh, lots of issues uh, around um, costs of, of the parts and, and getting that right. There's lots of research going into battery technology. So it's it's just not, I think, an opportune time um, to, to step into the market now. it got. Uh, many players are uh, putting lots of money into it so um they Probably figured it might be wiser to 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 uh, spend a little bit more money in, in an area where, where, where they are
1: really really good. Um, are they going to have a, a, a better shot at AI? I mean, the you know these things, these trends come in cycles and they come mm-hmm. in hype cycles. And AI is just the, the newest sort of uh, technology trend. It's a yes. big trend, of course it is. It's changing the future. All of those sorts of things that we know about. But just like you know, um, creating EVs, mm. AI is not easy either, and Apple is it is it is it a little behind the curve because it's been focused elsewhere. It's it's only,
5: uh, behind the curve in terms of uh, putting products out in the public. You know, uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, out there that it's sort of like. Uh, but the thing is, with, with companies like OpenAI, the, the, their products they put out are all, sometimes a little bit uh, not uh, completely developed. You know, they beta product products, and, I, and Apple really doesn't want that to to be a thing. They're particularly privacy-focused. so uh, And that's a big concern for a lot of people with AI and, of course, the whole issue of copyright infringement and the data used to to train AI. So Apple will certainly, I I think, they've got the capabilities to catch up in terms of publicly launched products. They can do that. They've got this plan to announce um, a a bunch of AI features at their upcoming uh, developer conference. So that's going to be very uh, interesting to see um they've promised this so we'll see and i'm pretty sure the money that that's been spent on the on the call venture in terms of the ai will not be for nothing um uh, so yeah we'll have to see if if they can do it but but the key is, I think, to, to the usefulness of AI at the end of the day will be will it be in a usable product and what will the benefits be to the consumer? We've seen this big hype, like you've mentioned now, around these companies and their share prices just shooting through the roof. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, it will be will those companies deliver product? That actually um, make ai a uh, useful tool uh, to to humanity uh, so so we 'll have to wait and see, and I think apple is is all about you know the user experience and and, and what consumers feel on their side so yeah you know, I, I, honestly i i i wouldn 't you know, bet against Apple. But yeah, they do have a, a, an issue with with a flood of executives going out of a company. But with with a brand like that, you can always attract more talent into the uh, into the company.
1: Thank you, Hanno Labuschka. He's a journalist at My Broadband. The reports out of the United States, very convincing reports that Apple is getting out of the electric vehicle market, following the likes of Dyson and others whose central. Skills base is not motorcars, and so often you get brands that extend beyond their capabilities. I was just doing some thinking yesterday about where it is that brands, you know, do make mistakes. Um, I, I, I saw something about Harley Davidson, for example. Harley Davidson went into the perfume business, um, and then some you know, sort of different companies have gone into clothing and they should never have gone into clothing. And there are a whole bunch of brands that have tried to do extensions of their products because somebody in an executive suite went, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? And we should really do that. Um, And I wonder uh, whether or not it does make sense always um, to, to extend your brand. Colgate. Now, Colgate, who we know, make toothpaste and toothbrushes. They tried in the 1980s to do this sort of thing and they created Colgate Kitchen Entrees, frozen food. Now, would you buy frozen food made by the same guys who make your toothpaste? Well, nobody wanted it, so it died. It was a terrible idea. Cosmopolitan, the magazine, made Cosmopolitan yogurt and thought, no, no, people who read Cosmo love yogurt. So we should make yogurt. Terrible idea. Bic, the guys who make throwaway pens with the little hole in the lid. What was their big idea? Underwear. Underwear. Astonishing. And then I saw a fascinating thing the other day. Um, I'm sure you've seen it if you like um, audio and technology. But I was walking through Melrose Arch and there was a pair of funky-looking sunglasses in an optician's with a Bose logo. Bose are the guys who make some of the finest audio equipment in the world. And this is a pair of sunglasses with Bose speakers built into the arms. Amazing. Amazing. And pretty good, though, because you're not blocking your ears. The sound, um, sort of, I think, goes through the, through your cranium, I'm told. I didn't try it out. But you connect the glasses... To your, um, to your smartphone with Bluetooth. And so there's a brand extension that works, bows and sunglasses. That's one that does work. But most of these things are crackpot ideas that should never be tried. But they are tried, and I suppose it gives us something useful to talk about. It is funny.
0: The Money Show. Consumer Ninja.
1: Wendy Nola is our Consumer Ninja. Talk to me about admin issues, car finance, arms, and chaos Wendy Nola. (laughs) I
7: I can do that. How long have you got? I'm putting my feet up. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, I'm talking about chaos. Now, um, I've just seen bear with me a second that I had the wrong um, trip up on my screen. So now I'm going to uh, chaos. Really? Okay. So the issue is this admin issue. It caused very, very big problems. Um, and the victim of all of this is a woman uh, called Melita and she first got hold of me just over a month ago to say that the car that she'd bought in 2019 five years ago to use on the bolt e-hailing platform was taken away from her on the 16th of january by a sheriff of the court holding a court order which had been obtained by standard bank now that was shocking for two reasons first of all she was up to date with her car repayments and secondly her car is financed by Bags MFC, not Standard Bank. So my first thought was, oh, okay, I've I've heard this one before. She bought a car that was uh, later discovered to have been stolen. But you know, it doesn't normally happen. It normally happens when you stop at a roadblock and the police flag you or like this car like what happened? What did MFC miss? my mind was spinning. So I start, she says to me, um she showed that the court order had somebody else's name and ID number on it, but the car details were right. She tried to reason with the sheriff. He said, sorry, I'm just doing my job. Go to the court. On, on that day, the 16th of, of January, so she is on her way to the court. Imagine, just like arriving up and trying to sort this out. This was a Pretoria uh, court, court in Pretoria. And then she says, oh, no, no, let me go to, to Ned Bank. She arrives at the reception and has to make a bit of a scene to get someone to come and talk to her. And um, the person that eventually came down to talk to her said, okay, I'll stop your debit order and I'll investigate with Standard Bank and I'll come back to you in five days. And I got the email, which is nearly always the case because neither of those things happened because the day she emailed me, did Melita, the 25th of January, the debit order had come off, the net bank debit order. And... It was more than five days since she was promised some feedback. She says, I don't have the car with me. I'm not sure where it is, what kind of condition it's in. Please assist. How do I go about resolving this issue? And about 50 email exchanges later with various parties, Bruce, I can tell you First of all, MFC said, well, we're sorry we, we didn't give you the expected level of service. We, <laughs> we The matter is still being investigated because we are dependent on feedback from Standard Bank, right? And, but pl- preliminary indications are that Standard Bank made an error in claiming ownership of the car as they released the car, they re- released their title back in 2018 prior to the sale and purchase agreement by our client. We our checks were all fine. We did all our due diligence on the car, everything was fine. And at this case, at this stage it looks like there was an admin error on the part of Standard Bank. Um and um we have refunded her January debit order and undertaken to suspend oh. further payments until the matter was resolved. Remember, I mean this is MFC's got nothing to do with any of this. No. They they did, you know, playing their part. So I go to Standard Bank and I say, Your client Melita tells me that that you have yet to get in touch with her about this matter. What's the holdup? is the car going to be released to her? And will you have it assessed to sh- ensure that the car is in good order? Um, it's now three weeks since the car was confiscated. Now, remember, she's earning no money on this Absolutely. bolt car. Uh, she She's had no communication from Standard Bank, and she still doesn't know where her car is. Where is it? When is it going to be returned to her? Ned Bank says it's communicated with Standard Bank, but no one from Standard Bank has got a hold of Melita in whose name this car is registered. So now I'm getting my fury up on behalf <laughs> of this one. But imagine if it was actually you. No, exactly. You know, I'm like, seriously? Yeah. So Standard Bank says uh, we regret that this isolated incident happened and we've sent a formal apology to Melita. The car was repossessed in error due to an incorrect uh, record regarding its ownership. Yeah. We're in the Wait, process okay. of rectifying Wait, the real We, 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 car. we know and this, but
1: here's your livelihood has been taken away from you. You buy something. In good I know. State. You anticipate exactly. that the professionals in the background have done their job. And you then, as the non-expert with money, pay the money in good faith, and then you get screwed over. It's horrible exactly,
7: so what what they what their answer was this the bank says standard bank says the standard bank caused all the trouble says we're working with NetBank bank and a representative of the sheriff's office to return the vehicle and we can confirm it's been very safely stored, and we'll be offering Melita a gesture of good win, goodwill for this unfortunate error, so obviously my question was well what that, that's that's right? So, I go to Melita <laughs> what is the gesture so the first offer was. And is it a gesture? Well, I don't know if that quite covers compensation that you are obliged to pay for illegally repossessing someone's car, a car that someone's owned for five years and is paying another bank for um, every month. So, 10,000 rand, they came up. And Melita was like, oh, I don't think so. I lost more than that due to your mistake. She wanted her, the loss of Bolt earnings, which she calculated, and this can never be exact, obviously, Bruce, uh, 28,000 rand, she said. She said she was hospitalized due to stress. She provided her records, but the bank said, well, medical aid paid, so we're not paying for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she wanted another 2,000 rand because she was driving all over the place in alternative to transport here there look at the car whatever um and she said i want ten thousand rand on top of that as a sorry unfortunately this country as you know we don't the legal system doesn't allow for pain and um pain and suffering kind of recompense but you'd think you'd think that in this case i don't know i think a top-up would have been nice in the end so she was asking something like forty-eight thousand. She got uh, 23. They paid. They didn't even pay the full. Her calculation of the full uh, bolt earnings loss. She says she settled it um, begrudgingly. She says Standard Bank just doesn't understand the damage, frustration, disrespect, stress, and anxiety it has caused me. And, and and being treated like a criminal. I mean, not exactly a criminal, but a sheriff comes and hands you a court order, and you've got to give the car over, and it's not even in your name. I really felt strongly that the story was a it was a huge. I mean, it was a really terrible thing to do, somewhat to someone. Yes, she got the first offer was ten. She got twenty-three. She was offered twenty-three. She got a car back. It's in good order. But you know, I'm not a one to say. You know, yeah, you know, exorbitant. You know, you must pay millions or no. yeah, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever. But I just think, yes, we don't have pain and suffering. But I think in this case, you know. They could have sharpened their pens a little bit more. If you actually, if they just had to actually imagine themselves, the people making the decisions, Bruce, yeah, but they had to actually imagine they, themselves in they're that not position. Not
1: allowed to, you see. It's it's not. I mean, you know, you would hope that in in a lovely world there is empathy, but unfortunately, these big institutions um don't. Sort of a, yeah, a, empathy isn't an accounting entry, so um you you can't account for it, and so it becomes yeah. becomes a cold blooded calculation, and it is awful. It really is for Melita, who's like, who has been severely uh, uh, prejudiced by uh, multiple failures here.
7: Yeah, I think I can t- quite imagine, I mean, sometimes ca- people can be a bit sort of football player dramatic about things, but <laughs> reading reading her, <laughs> I've got football fans in, my, in yes. my families, I'm forced to watch the dramatics. Um, but, you know, I really... I get a lot of cases, as you can imagine, as you know, my inbox is full of terrible stories, but yeah. this one, I just I, I just could picture this happening. The injustice of it, I think, would have put me in hospital. I would have just been, and no one was talking to her. MFC, I must say, um she uh, was a month behind because she didn't pay that that um that one uh, installment. then January it was refunded to her. and. It's not their fault. She had a contract with him, so they said, "Well, we'll add it on." And they're also dropping her interest rate by I think a percent, which is, which was I think, you know, pretty good of them. They, there was empathy on their side, I thought. And I, and I, yeah, I just thought, let me. I'm sure you'll appreciate this story if I share it with you this evening. What when, a little admin error can lead to, oh. you know
1: that's okay. Admin, admin, by itself is bad enough. Admin compounded by bureaucratic incompetence, however, is an, a dreadful insult to <laughs> to our humanity. It really is, and I think it makes it, it, it makes an already drudgy process even worse. Wendy Nola, thank you. Wendy is our consumer ninja. She joins us on a Wednesday night and she really does play at this this wild intersection of increasingly distant consumer relations. Companies claim that they've got algorithms and data and they're running things better than they ever have before. Yet what we constantly see on this feature is people getting let down by human error. Um, and so you can have all the best data in the world, all the best uh, algorithms in the world, and if the humans that are using the data and the algorithms are not equipped to do so or not empowered to do so, it leads to severe reputational repercussions. And so it is massively massively disappointing. Wendy Nola, thank you very, very much indeed uh, for bringing that to our attention this evening. Coming up in a few moments after Eyewitness News, Michael Fridgen is going to be joining us. Michael Fridgen, if there's anything in the world that Michael Fridgen does not know about wine, I would be very, very surprised because he is somebody with many, many years of wine experience. He's a deeply passionate um, follower of the wine industry. He's a leader in the wine industry. He's got his own import business and um, the, and, and certainly runs wine shows on behalf of large corporations. He um, has done many people many favors in the past. I will share with you a particular favor and a challenge I put to him uh, five years ago now, uh, probably about this time of year. And I said to Michael... I need something from 1928. And he said, well, there's nothing in South Africa from 1928, so I'm going to have to import something. And I immediately felt worried about this. A couple of weeks later, he came back to me and said, I'm going to have to import six bottles of this stuff. And I went, well, I can't buy six bottles. He said, don't worry, I can sell them. I'll make sure that you get a bottle. So we got a bottle and I must find, actually there's a good idea. I shall see if I can find a photograph of the bottle um, that I gave to my dad for his 90th birthday. And he said tiny little sips a couple of times a week and just relished and loved every one of those sips because of the fact that this bottle had been in a cellar in Portugal for as long as he'd been alive. And he was sort of, I suppose, living through history via these little evening sips of this wonderful... There it is. Ah, I've got the picture. Oliveras.
6: The Money Show.
1: Shapeshifters. I'm calling him Grape Shifter instead of Shapeshifter. His name is Michael and He is South Africa's Mr. Wine. How is the wine trade? I think the wine trade is
8: good, but (laughs) slightly fragile everywhere. So there are all kinds of things. If you look at the local wine scene, it's more exciting than ever. There are... Lots of new and very talented producers coming into the market. There's been consolidation amongst the bigger wholesalers. The quality um, that the big guys produce is, I think, unmatched pretty much worldwide. The value of the RAND makes exports good, but they should be much better, and that could be attributable to many things. But the industry is tough. It takes big hits in terms of excise. That really hurts. And the weather has not been kind to growers for the last two years. Uh, The 23s, the reds took quite a lot of wet weather, which didn't make for nice red wines. And this year crop sizes are down and the wind, when it it blows, stops the grapes from ripening. They're simply, the stomata will not, it can be in full sun, the wind blows, it can't ripen. Finally, the grapes get very tired and they shrivel. So they're a bit scared at the moment, but they are crossing the fingers. If you're a wine producer, by the very definition, you have to be an
1: optimist. No, If you grow anything, produce anything from what you grow, you have to be an optimist. How many producers do we have in South Africa? Are we growing the number of producers? My sense is that there's quite a lot of consolidation happening. So if you look at the grower
8: side of the industry in the last say twenty five to thirty years, the numbers have halved. Early nineteen nineties there were five thousand grape growers. Today there are two and a half thousand. That's a straight yeah. halving. It's a pretty much a worldwide trend. Between nineteen eighty five and twenty fifteen, a similar consolidation in Bordeaux amongst the fruit growers. In terms of the number of people making wine in their own or in rented cellar space, it's kind of stabilized at just over 500 compared with probably 300 30 years ago and 600 at its peak. When optimism got the better of many people's judgment.
1: <laughs> no, no, and judgment and, and wine don't necessarily always go together. What's the old GT Ferrero jo- uh, joke? Uh, wine, R.O.E. Wine is about R.O.E. And you go, well, you're a banker. Return on equity? No. Return on ego. Return on ego. It's about the only return you can get. Um, and and there, are lots of, there are lots of jokes about it, of course, um, com- coming through. But I, mean, I, I, mean, I when, how did you fall in love with wine? How did you know that it was going to become your life?
8: I didn't. I had a misspent youth, which started much earlier than would have been legal today. My parents were of that generation that believed you should be brought up with a glass of wine every now and again. The more I learnt about wine, the more I liked it. So even though I was academically quite strong and went to university and did things that looked like I might one day have a career, the thing I liked doing most was around wine. So I drifted into it, always thinking that one day I would grow up and get a proper job. And it didn't ever happen. And, you know, certainly into my 40s, I kept thinking it is still possible. <laughs> it is still possible that I will look at this slightly precarious existence of being um, a wine man about town with no really single business producing enough income on its own for me to feel properly secure, um, that I would finally see something that just, you know, guaranteed to give me security at whatever I was doing. never happened. The attraction of wine and the niche, I suppose, that I landed up carving for myself, which by its very nature was also a comfort zone, meant that I just carried on more or less on the same track. It diverged in different ways, so from consultancy into things like events like WineX, Mm. Trophy Wine Show, into the Wine Wizard app, into the business that imports wine, reciprocal wine. All of these entities um, kind of growing out of the involvement with wine and the gaps within that spectrum that
1: presented themselves. Uh, It's a wonderful diverse portfolio with with a wine underpin. But 30 years ago, Um, There was Niederberg, there was Delheim, there was Chateau Libertas, and so um, you had Stellenbosch Farmer's Winery that had a whole bunch of labels, and there was nothing particularly exciting or or very sexy. This has been an industry that has truly gone exponential since the advent of democracy. Democracy has been very good for the wine industry.
8: Democracy has certainly been good for the wine industry, and although there was a huge kind of boom in terms of new plantings and numbers in the isolation years of the 80s. There were no markets. No. And there, I think there was probably a reasonable shortage of skill as to how to manage those new varieties. So everything was starting to happen. And then along came democracy. And we went from exports of 25 million litres a year in the early 1990s to as much as 450 million a few years ago, pre-COVID, probably 2015, 2016, well over 400 million liters. That's a very big boom. It did coincide with the vanishing of the KWV.
1: Remember the KWV existed. As a buyer of last resort. Please explain KWV to me, because I do remember in the bad old days that you couldn't buy KWV wine in South Africa. It was only for export and only members of parliament got an, an allocation of KWV. So if you knew a member of parliament, you could have a bottle of Redderberg. Oh, and it was just uh, probably pretty revolting. I don't know. I it don't, was I, I,
8: pretty solid wine okay. of the same kind that you could have bought from any wholesaler. So, in those days, before the transformation, as we like to call it, of the KWV, which was late 1990s, a process that they initiated and which was then blocked, uh, quite rightly, I acted with and for Derek Harnicum. they were told, effectively, you can't just become a corporate, having made all your money from being, in a sense, the buffer between government and the growers, you owe some of that money back to the industry. So that all happened in 1999. But prior to that, it was essentially a control board. As a control board, it guaranteed a minimum price to the growers, which is why we had 5,000 growers, and those growers effectively could break even on the KWV's price, providing a their tonnages were high. Well, high tonnages generally mean not great quality, and providing they were able to sell some themselves as kind of their own bottled wine and could dispose of everything else into this melting pot of KWV wine. And that's how it worked. When that safety net was taken away from them in that transformation process, if we hadn't had a growing export business, there would have been a shortfall, Mm -hmm. an absence of market for three or 400 million litres. That market came from exports. But these days, the bulk wine market is not great anywhere. There's a worldwide decline in per capita wine consumption. So the inevitable result is that, yes, the farmers are selling their wines, but at lower and lower prices. And even the decline in the value of the rand is not not sufficient to
1: compensate. But the top end producers are producing the most astonishing Astonishing wines, and yet it feels like it, it, it's the, the you kind of got to drive your those, those top-end wines individually. So if you're a producer, if you're Villafonte, for example, if you're Mike Ratcliffe, you are on the road constantly um, with, with with coat with big bottles in, inside your jacket and you flashing at people at airports saying, please buy my wine, sort of thing. Um, it's, I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that. Um, you see a lot of Distel wines. Um, you, you, you see the big, the big brands sort of being represented in, in duty freeze in some places because they've got the Amarula distribution there, which helps them then uh, get their wines on the same palate. Um, but, but yeah, then you get the, 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 the boutique wineries, I suppose, Berry Brothers and Rudd in London, for example, and there must be similar in the United States, that import small amounts. It's not getting the sort of global exposure it so richly deserves. It's hard.
8: So it's one of the problems is those, exactly those two extremities. So I think at our very top end, so Distel, which is now Hannequin Beverages, or Douglas Green Bellingham DGB, or any one of those, they produce really good quality wine at really competitive prices and they get them out. But the trouble is that they don't have the same niche appeal as the niche wines have. So they are forced to go out and do big deals with the supermarkets. Once you're in the supermarkets in the Tesco's et cetera of the world, then by definition, you can't also be in a Berry brothers and there's very little in the in between space that can get critical mass. So, Anthony Hamilton Russell at a presentation last year pointed out that most of the people in his kind of classically styled South African wine circle, so bigger than Irben Sardi and Chris Olhart, but smaller than Niederberg, um, they are typically producers of ten to 20,000 cases a year, and they probably have 40 or 50 export markets, which is in itself remarkable. But by the time you have spread it that thin, you can't really make an impact for brand South Africa in any place. And if you look at the United States, it's really 30 or 40 separate markets over and above the red tape, which makes it quite difficult to work there. If you look at the United States, that means you've got to go to 30 or 40 countries just in the United States and get them to agree to list your stock and the first response, which I've had firsthand experience of, is they're going to say, nobody's going to walk in and ask for it. No. So it's really organic growth. It's certainly been much more successful in traditional markets. So the UK, funnily enough, France, Germany,
1: the low countries, even Italy. It, it, it's places from which we source our tourists who come in, I guess, and then have warm and fuzzy feelings about a beautiful day in the Winelands going for lunch at, I don't know, um and which is just wonderful. I was there the other day. Glorious surroundings, absolutely beautiful. And you want to relive the moment. And the best way to relive the moment is into a glass. And
8: a there advocate. are lots of, of, of things. There's an apt app now called, I think, Salami, which works just for the producers. So you walk into a tasting room and you're a foreign tourist and you want to buy that wine delivered to your home, there's now an app that tells you which wines are available in which markets. Ah. So the growing export business is also now partly supporting the cellar doors of the wineries themselves, which helps everybody. And that is why the growth is there, but it's slow and organic. There isn't that sort of moment where the world will discover South Africa the way they discovered Australia in the 80s. Yeah. And Australia went from being kangaroo within <laughs> five years to the biggest source yeah. of supply to the UK market. Amazing, isn't it? Sunshine in a bottle, and that's what everybody suddenly wanted. And just that point... The decline in wine consumption is at the end of a very long upward wave. Since the 1980s, wine has been a la mode, and now there's a new generation of kids who say, you know what, I'm not sure. I want to drink only wine or that much wine or even drink it all. So there is that stuttering that Mm. we're seeing now as the generation that discovered wine in the 80s is moving on and the next generations aren't nearly as convinced.
1: Well, all the more for us. Um, <laughs> you've got a wonderful way of scoring wine and you go through a process of tasting a hundred wines in a morning and you, use, yes, it's the spitting of the wines and you've invited me previously, I've never been able to make it, to come and observe the process of how the wines are tasted and you give them a score out of a hundred. And because it's a blind tasting, you have no idea if it's a bottle of Chateau Libertas or a bottle of Chateau Pietras. You would probably tell the difference between the two, but some of us might struggle a little bit. But you will go, this is a very good wine, and you might give the Chateau Libertas an 85, or whatever the case might be, and the a 91. And suddenly when I go into a shop and I see on the Wine Wizard app that actually, you know, at a price point of many thousands of dollars cheaper than a Chateau Petrus, or a Petrus, I think it's called, yeah, I think well. it's got a Chateau in front of it, um, uh, you know, maybe the the Chateau Libertas isn't a bad deal um, because it's an 85, and how bad can an 85 be? And I can make that choice. However, people are still wedded to the platter guide, which I find strange because it's quite a cumbersome, difficult, small print thing to do and not very techno wizzy. But wine drinkers don't seem to be that adept at adapting. To to modern tech when it comes to checking out their wines,
8: I think they are they they, they are certainly fading on platter. Platter is the same reliable guide it's always been. Um, these days, I suppose the single problem is that from the moment it's in you know on the shelf, it starts. It's dated, to, yeah. It's dated, but it's a pretty reliable indicator for what it's worth, but people don't want to walk around with a book, and the current generation certainly doesn't. So in its heyday, it was probably the biggest-selling book in South Africa every year. In John and Erica's time, fifty to 60,000 copies were sold. It's down now to certainly under 20 and probably somewhere, hopefully, around 10 or 15. It's, it's very important for the industry, yeah. and I suspect that many of the purchasers are in the industry. You know, we buy half a dozen copies. It's in the office. It's a phone book. It's a reference point. What went into this wine? It's all ready for you if you happen to have the guide on hand and you don't, say, have a fast internet. But, yes, it's been superseded by all kinds of circumstances, and it hasn't found a ready replacement.
1: Where is the most exciting wine region to your mind? Right now, and who's producing wine? in I'm going to areas. sound desperately patriotic, but and I'm not alone in this.
8: It's South Africa. If you look at all the leading international Janssen, yeah. Tim Atkin, Neil Martin, Anthony uh, Muller, all of the guys who come to South Africa or taste for South uh, taste South Africa for their international publications, say the same thing: the level of dynamism, the level of nuanced and very thoughtful winemaking, but a huge percentage of that is very geeky. <laughs> and by that, I really mean that more than 50% of the wines about which they enthuse, you could not walk into a bottle store in Johannesburg and find easily. Yeah. You'd have to get it railed to you. You'd have to go into the internet, have to phone the producer. It's getting a bit like, you know, the heyday of the Napa Valley where if you weren't On the mailing, some of the farms genuinely have a waiting list to get on the mailing list. (laughs) I'm not kidding
1: you. (laughs) Because also they can't produce the volumes. Okay, in South Africa then, if South Africa is the epicenter of wine brilliance, where in South Africa is doing most of the magic? Is there There, one place? No, there's not.
8: That's part of the magic of South Africa, is that if you look at where we are in terms of temperate zone, and you go on a horizontal line from Elgin to the Swatland, you're really talking about basically one or two degree points maximum of latitude. But you're going from Indian Ocean to Atlantic Ocean. You're going from hill country to flatlands. You've got truly fabulous Chardonnay in Elgin. No question, it is the epicenter of fine Chardonnay. In Swatland, you're seeing extraordinary things Obviously, the old vineyards are helping, but there's great Chenin Blanc. There's really finely managed Shiraz or Syrah, however you Mm -hmm. call it, Tinta Barocca. Lots of Rhone-style varieties that are performing well there. But right in the middle of this is Stellenbosch. And Stellenbosch is probably the most versatile single region in the world. And I mean that. You get great Chardonnay. Fabulous cabernet, yeah. good semillon, and if you've got the semillon you can manage the Sauvignon Blanc. There's fabulous Shiraz. It really is a very broad opportunity, partly because it's many regions rolled into one, and it just happens to have a climate that works very well
1: for fine wine production. If I was going to buy one case of wine, which I, and I've, I've tried this for many years to, to buy a store, and it's so delicious, you just drink it. But if I was to buy one case of wine that I was to give to somebody else to store for me um, to make a decent return over 10 years, that's not Canon Corp. Uh, That's not Bayer's Cloutier's Diesel Pinotage or something along those lines. Okay, so
8: that's... One a, case. It's a, that is a different question. I'm happier to answer that than which one will give you most pleasure in 10 years' no, time. No. So you're talking about the investment potential of those yes. wines. This is the money show. This is the money show. And the answer is you absolutely can't go wrong on Ibn Saadi. Yep. You certainly can't go wrong on the oldest single sites of Chris Arlite's Chenin Blancs. They're really there. I've certainly seen upward, constant upward movement in wines like Porcelainbergh. Um, my slight reservation there is I just hope that the quantities don't grow relative to the demand, yes, whereas in the case of the old vine producers, your guarantee in fact is that if anything, the volumes will decline absolutely so um you know Radio Lazarus is no more um because that vineyard died in the drought it was it had survived several droughts, it was sixty or seventy years old it finally conked in. So, old vineyard sites, top-end producers. It's an easy formula. You
1: just have to get onto the waiting list (laughs) to get onto the mailing list. Okay. Now, which which one of those is going to give you the greatest drinking pleasure? Because you said not to ask. So, now I'm asking um, in 10 years' time.
8: Ah, red or white? Red. Ah, you see, now, the red one is quite an interesting one because… I'm not completely convinced about the joys of Swartland Red because I'm a bit of a classicist. Yep. And in my own way, Bordeaux and Burgundy are the two that I would you can't go wrong gravitate. Paul, you can't go wrong with Paul Sauer. I mean, and that's the point. Yeah. You would have to say to yourself, Canon Corp deliver. It always does deliver. Yep. The quality is always there. The ageworthiness is indisputable. It's remarkably affordable,
1: at a thousand rand a bottle.
8: Well, the cab, <laughs> no, no, the cab comes ca- in at is 500 sure. and the pulsar, when it is released, is 700 and something. Okay. You, that's not a bad buy for a wine that you know will definitely get better. Um, they're managing the alcohols,
1: they're managing the intensity, they're managing the fruit. It's super smart wine. And they just doubled the land, of course, because they bought, they didn't double it. They bought an extra 50%. They bought the Ladybird wine. Leibach. Leibach. But
8: let me add that I'm not sure that the fruit that will go into the Balsars okay. will come from there. Lovely.
1: Michael Frigin, always a joy. Lovely to see you.